Hello, and welcome to the Hope Reformed Baptist Church of Long Island's podcast. In this episode, we continue our series in the Epistle to the Hebrews. The sermon was preached by Pastor Richard Jensen on June 6, 2021, during the morning worship service. The sermon's title is Eternal Judgment and discusses Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes. You can also visit our site, hopereformedli.net, and find us on Facebook and Sermon Audio for more information. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Here now, the inspired word of God. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we prepare to look into your word, On this very difficult topic, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us, and that, Father, that as your word goes forth, that it would have the effect that you desire, just as you have promised, and that it would accomplish every purpose of yours, and that it would not return void. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In New York State, crimes are divided into two major classes, misdemeanors and felonies. Felonies being obviously the more serious crimes. And and then there are further classifications, five classes of felonies and two subclasses of felonies. And the purpose of the classification is an attempt to ensure that the punishment fits the crime. For example, not all homicides are murder. Uh, Murder is basically the intentional taking of a life. Some lesser degrees are manslaughter, which is, in general, the reckless taking of a life. Uh, But some homicides are justifiable. For example, self-defense. Now, that's a, a general principle that we see in law. The punishment of discipline should fit the crime. In fact, we even take that into our homes. As parents, we're trying to be careful that when our children violate a law or a rule of the home, that the discipline fits the offense. Because we know not every offense is the same. And it is, in fact, a biblical principle. If you study the case laws of the Torah, God instructs his people according to this very principle. And while God authorizes the death penalty, it is not appropriate for every offense. Even in the case where flogging was the punishment, there were even restrictions on that. And I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 2 and 3. Then it shall be that if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall make him lie down and be beaten in the presence with a number of stripes according to his guilt. He may beat him 40 times, but no more, so that he does not beat him with any more stripes than these, and your brother is not degraded in your eyes. You see, God is a just God, and he expects his creation uh, to be ruled in justice. God has a high view of law and justice. 
In fact, listen, listen to what Moses said to the people as he was preparing them to enter the promised land. Concerning the law, he said this, Deuteronomy 4, 6. So keep them, keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, now listen to what he says about the law of God. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Unfortunately, in our postmodern era, the concept of law and judgment is being eroded. Now, it would be very easy for me to talk about them out there, but I'm speaking about evangelical churches. It has become fashionable to relegate the law to an older dispensation, and there's even churches that preach that law and grace are at contradiction to one another. And eternal judgment is being replaced by various systems of conditional immortality or annihilationism. Now, I have no intention this morning of expounding upon what these variant views are. I want to go right then. Let's see what the Bible says. We're reading from Hebrews 6. We're, we're in a fairly beginning stages of our study of the book of Hebrews, and we came to these verses, 6, 1, and 2. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. The apostle who wrote this epistle considers eternal judgment as an elementary teaching about Christ. It is one of the foundational principles of the faith. In other words, it is an essential element of the Christian religion. We don't choose, we don't get to choose which doctrine to believe based upon whether or not we like it. But we, we believe what we do based upon the clear teaching of Scripture. So let's begin by seeing what does the Scripture teach concerning eternal judgment. Well, if eternal judgment is a biblical teaching, you would expect to find it in the Old Testament. Perhaps not as detailed in the New, but it should be there, and it is. In one of the prophecies of Daniel, we read this, Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And of course we find it in the Psalms, Psalm 9, verse 7. But the Lord abides forever, he has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness, he will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. And again in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So we see it's clearly taught in the Old Testament. What about Jesus? Did Jesus have anything to say about this? Interestingly enough, Jesus spoke more about judgment, about damnation, and about hell than any other person in Scripture. And that's an important point to consider. Think of it this way, the Savior of mankind. 
The most gracious and merciful man who ever lived spoke more about the terrifying doctrine than anyone else. Listen to some of his teaching. Speaking to the generation that was alive during his time, Jesus rebuked them with these words, Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will be condemned and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, Solomon, something greater than Solomon is here. And then addressing those cities where miracles were performed, Jesus speaks these strong words. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had been occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. There can be no doubt that Jesus taught the reality of the day of judgment. And we see the same thing taught through the New Testament by the apostles. The apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then later in the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, we find these words. Verse, chapter 9, verse 27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And Jude, Jude 6, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now these are just a few verses, and there are many more just like that throughout Scripture. So we can say with certainty that the biblical teaching is that there will be a day of judgment. And, and this doctrine is actually summarized in our 1689 London Baptist Confession in par paragraph 1 of chapter 32. It's a brief paragraph, so I'm going to read it to you. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to that what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. I want to continue by examining a few points concerning this judgment. I want to start by talking about the certainty of the day. The Apostle Peter addresses this very point in his second epistle. He lays out a, a very logical argument to show the certainty of that day. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness, 
reserved for judgment. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. We get to the bottom line. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. And he reinforces that in the next chapter of that same epistle with these words, 2 Peter 3, 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. I want you to notice. Notice what Peter does. He connects the word of God to the certainty of judgment. Now, we've addressed the power of God's words numerous times from this pulpit. It was by God's word that the heavens and earth were created. He spoke, and whatever he commanded came about. With that divine command, let there be light, and there was light. There is no question, but the word of God is powerful. We even read that earlier in Hebrews chapter 4. It's, it's, it, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even as far as the division of soul and spirit. Both joints and marrow able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we also know about the word of God from the lips of our Savior. He says, your word is truth. So when Peter ties the day of judgment to the word of God, that means it is certain nothing can stop that day from coming. So one may reasonably ask then, when will that day be? There is a biblical answer to that question. Jesus said it will occur at the end of the age. Remember the parable of the wheat and tares? The farmer is told to leave the tares, don't pull them up yet, until the harvest. Then pull up the wheat and the tares and separate them. And Jesus uses that as an analogy for judgment in Matthew 13, 40. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. And again, the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself, notice the emphasis, I myself will raise him up on the last day. And that corresponds to the prophecy given the Apostle John in the Revelation. Remember, John sees the, he sees the saints reigning with Christ for a thousand years. That represents, that's representative of the church age. And remember, in biblical terminology, a thousand represents a long period of time. It's an indeterminate period of time. And after the thousand years are completed, we find the judgment. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead and which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. You know, it's a fool's errand to go beyond the teaching of Scripture. And we have seen so many attempts to do just that when it comes to the timing of that day. The 20th century alone was rife with date setters. Some were vague and said, well, it's going to be around this time, but it's going to be this year. Christ is going to return. Others were more blatant and actually set a date. Even, I think one man even down to what time it was supposed to happen. Of course, they've all been proven wrong. The Bible doesn't give us that information, and so it is foolish to speculate. All we need to know is it's going to be the last day of history. Another important question that's often asked is, what is the nature of the judgment to come? Well, first, we have seen that all men will be raised and judged. The believers, the righteous in Jesus Christ, will be ushered into the glory of the Lord. They are raised into eternal life. Their sins have been paid for. Their sins are forgiven. And they are their spirits will be reunited with their earthly bodies, although changed, but in the self-same body. And they go into what the scripture calls eternal life. John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. What a glorious passage of scripture that is. And a little, few verses later in verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. The Apostle John wrote so much about love and his epistle as well as his gospel are very encouraging. But let me pause for just a minute before I read from that. And let me ask you a question. Is the idea of Judgment Day a little scary? Hmm? If you're here today and not a Christian, it should be far worse than a little scary. It should be terrifying for you. But even for the Christian, the idea of standing before the Savior who knows everything, even those idle thoughts, it's got to be at least a little intimidating. And so John writes these words in 1 John 4, 17. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the day of judgment is not a day to be feared. You can go into that day with confidence because of your Savior. Holds no fear. That is good news. That means the gospel, doesn't it? The bad news is for all those who are outside of Christ, judgment will be terrifying. And those are not my words. The writer to Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 30 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
And again, the Lord will judge his people. And verse 31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And again, James says in chapter 2, verse 13, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. You know, we looked briefly earlier at the parable of wheat and tares. Look how Jesus describes the judgment in Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Mark 9, Jesus emphasizes just how bad it will be in hell with these words. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. The word translated hell in that verse is Gehenna, which was the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. It was also the place where sacrificing of children took place in earlier there were constant fires burning and, of course, the worms feeding upon the garbage. You know, there is a debate about the nature of the punishment in the eternal state, the way we have seen it described. Some, some say, well, it's literal fire, and what others say, no, that's just an analogy. I don't care whether it's an analogy or literal it's terrifying. The point is, I don't think we can even begin to imagine how terrible that will be. And if these descriptions aren't enough, one of the realities of the dread is that it's eternal. Those who would speak against the eternality of the judgment have to overcome all the language that is used by the biblical writers. Mark chapter 9, this is Jesus said, again, I just mentioned, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than have two eyes and be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, it is never ending. Jude, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way, as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And we read it in the, the text this morning in chapter 25 of the Gospel of Matthew. Then he will answer, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. That's an important verse because notice the contradiction or the contrast. Eternal punishment, eternal life. If eternal life is forever, eternal punishment is also forever. That's what makes it so terrifying. You know, to be punished is bad enough, but men have endured some very cruel treatment at the hands of other men. We hear stories about prisoners of war suffering unspeakable horrors inflicted by the captors. I worked with a man a number of years ago, quite a few years ago now, who was a POW uh, in, during the Korean War. And he didn't like to talk about what he suffered. He was very tight-lipped about it. 
But he made this comment, which is profound. He said, what kept me and my fellow prisoners going was the hope of rescue. He says, I knew that my platoon, they were out, that they were not going to give up. Eternal punishment means there is no rescue. There is no hope of escape. And there is no mercy. Eternal punishment is exactly that. It is eternal. You know, the issue is often raised then. Is that punishment too harsh? Is God being too severe and too harsh? A loving God would not afflict inflict such punishment even upon great sinners. In 2016, at a Ligonier conference, R.C. Sproul was asked a similar question. Exactly that. Wasn't God being too harsh on Adam? And I'm going to read some of his response because nobody can say it like R.C. Sproul can. He said, this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After God had said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied. But the greatest punishment would come upon the one who seduced him. And then Sproul says, and the punishment is too severe? At this point, if you watch the video, you can actually see him physically quivering. His face and his lip is quivering. What's wrong with you people? (laughs) And he didn't say it to be funny. He says, I'm serious. That's what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. The question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we had an understanding of our sin and an understanding of who God is, that's the question. Unquote from Dr. Sproul. Any serious study of the language used, the analogies given, and an understanding of the character of God and his hatred of sin leads one to the just nature of the eternal punishment of the wicked. We read about the last day in judgment in Revelation 20 earlier. Let me read just two more verses, verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let me clarify one more point. In Scripture, the primary meaning of death is not ceasing to exist, but it means separation. The second death is not ceasing to exist. It is eternal separation from the love, mercy, and grace of God. But it also means the presence of his wrath. And it is the culmination of the justice of God. On that day, all evil will be punished perfectly. There will be no more injustice in the creation of God. Why is sin then punished eternally? Because it's against a holy and infinite God. You might ask the purpose of this doctrine. 
One more quotation from, the paragra from paragraph 2 of the London Baptist Confession, chapter 32. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive the fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast aside into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This doctrine is not easy to hear. And let me say this, it's not fun to preach. It is so much more pleasant to come into this pulpit and to talk about God's love and his mercy and his grace. I enjoy that so much. In fact, Friday evening was our homeschool graduation ceremony. We've been praying for one of the homeschool moms who had breast cancer and was suffering, and she was here. And she made a point of coming to speak to me so I could speak to you and to thank you for your prayers, your generosity, and all that went with it. And she announced she was cancer-free. I love preaching that stuff. <laughs> I would much rather preach that. But if that's all I preached, I would not be doing my job. For as joyful as it is to be in the kingdom of God, to have a future of hope and welfare, it is terrifying to look at the future of the non-believer. And so we must preach the whole counsel of God. And the writer to the Hebrews considers this an important foundational doctrine. So how do you respond to a sermon such as this one? First, you can do nothing. You could ignore the warning of Scripture, choose not to believe it, can find somebody who has a more gentle interpretation of Scripture. Perhaps you think you're even okay. After all, God is love. You may just wind up like those Jesus speaks about in Matthew 7, where he says, not everyone who comes to me will say, Lord, Lord. They will not all enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, and then I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. I would encourage you to recall the descriptions of eternal punishment and the warning it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Another response is you can use this opportunity to examine yourself. Examine yourself using the word of God as a standard. Understand that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See yourself as a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Repent, call upon Jesus as Lord, and you will be saved. You will pass from eternal death to eternal life. And believers, I would encourage you too to examine yourself, just as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. 
Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. You see, the stakes are too high to take your salvation for granted, to presume upon the mercy of God. Paul also cautioned the church in Philippi. He says, so then, beloved, as just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't take it for granted. You know, I worked in the criminal justice system here in New York for more than 20 years, and I wish I could tell you that we got it all right. The reality is we don't. Sometimes the guilty go free, and sometimes the innocent are convicted. And too often, the laws themselves are unjust. And as far as, far too often, the system is corrupted by men seeking to advance themselves, even at the expense of others. But in God's court, there is perfect justice. Everyone who is guilty will be punished perfectly. And any offense against a holy God is worthy of eternal death. The only escape is to repent. Call upon Jesus as Lord. Your sins will be covered by his sacrifice on the cross. And when the books are open on the last day, all those who have trusted in him in this life will have life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are sobered by the words of your book. And Father, we ask now that you would examine every heart here. And Father, if there is one here today who doesn't know you, Father, may today be the day. I would ask that you would have mercy. Take away the heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, that they might repent and believe. And then, Father, for all those of us who are believers, may we examine ourselves and that we would not take the salvation that you have granted to us. Take it for granted, but understand that it came at a great cost, the death of our Savior on the cross. We thank you now, Father, and we pray that you would prepare our hearts as we come to your table. We ask this in Jesus' name.